So the Bible reading for our new series is from the book of Acts, and it is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, which can be found on page 830 of the Pew Bibles. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he has promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were, while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into the heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return, and in the same way you saw him go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before I start, I, I want to uh, say a special word of thanks um, to Mark and to Trevor for preaching the last three weeks. And uh, I got to hear Mark, his first one, but I missed his second. I missed Trevor's one, uh, but I've heard some really encouraging things from your word ministry to us. So thank you, brothers, so much. Um, I've, been, I've missed speaking God's word to you guys. Uh, it is such a joy each week for me to sit down and to just get have... have the Spirit wash over me as I open up God's Word and get my head around what it means for me and for us together. And I've been able to do that this week. But in particular, I've been thinking about the whole of the book of Acts. We're about to kick this series off. It's 28 chapters. We're going to do it over 18 weeks, term two, term three and term four. So excited. Acts is amazing. And I'm praying that it will shake us all up in such a really positive way as we see what happened at that very moment when the church was launched, uh, hence the rocket ship. Um, it's kind of a retro. I mean, it's 50 years since Apollo 11. You know, there it is, taking off. Uh, it's an exciting time of launching a new era, and that's what we're seeing in the book of Acts. So with that in mind, let me lead us in prayer. Loving Father, thank you so much for your Holy Scriptures. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit you use them now to help us know you and ourselves better. And our prayer, Heavenly Father, is that as we come to the book of Acts, that you would shake us up, that you would help us to be astounded by what you did in the moments after Jesus left, 
and that by your spirit we would understand the power of your spirit who teaches us and leads us to witness to Christ who brings us to the Father. And so now teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, question for you as we kick off is this. What are you looking forward to? What are you counting down to? Kind of like the countdown in a rocket ship. Well, until recently, the, uh, the two big events that my family was looking forward to were the weddings of our daughters. Uh, but they're over now. And so I now need to think about something else to put in my little app in my phone that I count down to. Uh, and so I've decided next December to try and run my first ever marathon. Um, <laughs> yeah, what am I thinking? So in 505 days' time, according to my app, uh, I hope to run, the, uh, run a marathon as a part of my long service leave next December. And so between now and then, I will prepare my body to try and run 42 kilometres in around four hours or so. Uh, it might sound exciting and impressive, but at the end of the day, it's just a running race, really. It's a long running race, but it's just a running race. Uh, and I don't think it will be truly life-changing, unless I die. But, uh, but, but to be honest, uh, really what I'm looking forward to most is the return of Jesus. This is what I'm excited about. Uh, he's coming back any day now. Now, it's been nearly 2,000 years since he left, but when you get to the very last chapter of the Bible, there are four times when we read that he is returning soon. The word soon appears four times in that last chapter. Behold, I am coming soon, 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 soon. And so this is something that is far more interesting than any event that you might be looking forward to in your life. But we know that he's coming back soon because we live after the events of the New Testament. See, all of the excitement of the coming of Jesus and his death and resurrection and his ascension, his ascending, going up into heaven, they've all happened. They're history. They're in the past. And what's more, the explosive launch of the church has already happened as well. And today we live in that trajectory as we live in love in anticipation of Christ's return. But imagine it was 2,000 years ago and you were living in the time when Jesus walked on the earth. Wow, what an amazing experience that must have been. You were with him when he was alive. You were with him when he died. You were with him when he rose from the dead and you met him as the, ascended, as, as the resurrected Christ. You were there with him at that moment. What would you be looking forward to? See, that's exactly where the book of Acts begins. And it's where we are going to start our epic 18-week series today. See, the book of Acts was written by the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Acts is written by Luke. It's volume two. Some people talk about Luke Acts as being the one big book. There's a lot of similarities. You see, right at the first two verses of Acts, it says, verses 1 and 2, In my first book I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. 
So the very first line of the book of Acts is, remember part one. It sounds a lot like the way that part one started. And so the third verse of the book of, Acts, of, the book of Luke, the book of Luke says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honourable Theophilus. See, what we have in the book of Acts is an historical account of all the things that happened after Jesus died and rose from the dead. It tells us how the church grew from just a few hundred believers to being a movement that was global. It was a difficult process. It was a painful journey. People were literally killed for following Jesus. And yet the powers of darkness that tried to extinguish the flame of the church were met with the far more powerful Holy Spirit. And this spiritual warfare was carried out before their very eyes. See, here in the book of Acts, we see the amazing power of the Holy Spirit as he inspired and energized and equipped the apostles to, for them and the believers to powerfully witness to the life and teachings of the Lord Jesus. It was a truly awesome time to be alive. You know, sometimes today, church life can feel a little ho-hum. It's been 2,000 years nearly since Jesus was alive and the church has gone through some pretty big highs and some pretty big lows. I don't know whether you think that today we're in a high or in a low. It feels maybe in terms of our society we're in a low. And we sort of have these highs and lows ourselves. If, if you've been a Christian for a short period of time, maybe you can just think back recently when you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and forgiven and have the hope of eternity and it gives you a spring in your step as you get up in the morning saying, today I'm friends with Jesus. Isn't it amazing? Or maybe you've been followers with Jesus for quite a bit longer than that. You think back to when you were much, much younger and, well, sometimes life is just a bit harder now and maybe even... Dragging yourself up to church at times can be a little bit tricky as well. I think what we are going to experience as a group, as a fellowship, as a family here over the next couple of months is an opportunity to relive that amazing era in the life of our history in the book of Acts. And in doing so, I think reliving this era will rev us up. I'm praying it'll do that for you. I've spent a heap of time reading through the book of Acts in the last couple of weeks and I feel really revved up. It was an explosive time. This, was, this is my history. It's our history. It was extraordinary. And if you're feeling just a little bit flat as a Christian, oh, I just want to say to you, get into the book of Acts. It will rev, the Spirit of God will rev you up as you see how it exploded in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the original moments after Jesus ascended into heaven and I pray that it will rev you up. But before we see this, we're given a bit more detail about what has happened in the moments before Jesus was raised into heaven, even though that's the point in history that the previous gospel ends. And so it begins with a summary of the 40 days between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, okay? 40 days from when he came alive from the tomb to when he shot up into heaven into a cloud. And we read in verse 3, 
During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. This verse gives us a summary of what happened in those 40 days. He went around telling people and showing people, I'm really alive. No questions asked. I'm really, really alive. And this was important. It really, really mattered that he had risen from the dead. The truth of the resurrection matters. The truth of the resurrection matters. Because if Jesus did not really rise from the dead, this is all a big lie. We're just a nice little club that meets here on a Saturday night in Jamboree. We could meet for all sorts of other reasons. Nothing spiritual if Jesus is still dead. But he is alive and it really matters. And it was clear to thousands of people that he was alive. We read in the Bible that he appeared to thousands of people, not just a couple of people who maybe had some sort of weird kind of you know, delusion. Thousands of people. And in that time, he showed that he was truly alive. And he showed them what it meant to be a part of the kingdom of God. This is his thing. He focused on the kingdom of God all the time. Kingdom of God this, kingdom of God that. He'd open his mouth and he'd talk about the kingdom of God. It's like, again, it's like, yeah, bring it on. And because Jesus was focused on the kingdom of God, I take it that we also should be focused on the kingdom of God. We should be focused on what it means for Jesus to be king and for us to be in his kingdom. What it means for him to have this rule over the universe. Well, to explore this a little bit more, Jesus now gives us, Luke, sorry, in his, in, his, in his book of Acts, he now gives us a flashback to an incident that happened after Jesus' resurrection, but before he went back into heaven. Okay, so it's in those 40 days, right? We read in verse 4 that once, when Jesus was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. Now, he doesn't actually mention the kingdom of God here, does he? He's having a meal with them, and then he tells them, stay here in Jerusalem. Don't leave. Don't be tempted to go. Don't, don't get out of here. Stay right here, because there's a special gift that's going to be given to you from God the Father. I love receiving gifts. I'm sure you do as well. The question is, what is that gift from God going to be? Well, he goes on to say, verse 5, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wow. What is the gift from the Father to the believers there? We read that the Father would give the Holy Spirit. He would give the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was going to come upon them, overpowering them in a way that was like the full immersion water baptism that John brought. You know what it's like when you, you see someone get fully, fully dunked. I, I've done that a few times. I've gone down to the beach with somebody and I've been in a wetsuit if it's been winter and I'm a bit, you know, cold. And all the way down and all the way up, it's a, you get drenched totally. Now, if you've just been sprinkled, which is how I got baptised, it still works. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But the point is that the baptism is about this being overwhelmed with water, this, this massive event. 
And Jesus is saying that the Father will give a baptism of the Holy Spirit. It will knock them around. It'll be an event for them all. It sounds really exciting. And you can expect them to ask, when is it going to happen? You know, they can only imagine what it would be like and what it would happen when he came. And when I talk about he, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. He is a he, not an it. I think most of you know this, but occasionally we, we, we forget this. We, we slip into it like the Spirit is some sort of um, supernatural, non-personal force. But the Holy Spirit is a he. There's the person of, who's the Father, there's the person who's the Son, there's the person who's the Holy Spirit. So we don't want to talk about the Spirit like it's an it, because he's a he. And so we've already heard Jesus talk about the Spirit in these kinds of ways. And so on the night before he died, in John 15, Jesus said, I will send you the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. And a chapter later, but in fact it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the Advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. It's not some sort of magic power. Like, no, it's a person. Jesus goes, second person goes, the Trinity, third person comes, the Holy Spirit. All of this is not new to them. They knew that Jesus was sending the Holy Spirit and he would come to comfort them and to testify to them about Jesus. And since Jesus uses this word baptism, it sounds like it's going to be pretty spectacular when it happens. And they, the disciples, tried to work out what it all means for the kingdom of God that Jesus keeps talking about. And so in verse 6, they, we read that when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom?" That seems like a fair question, really. It's like, so it's all going to happen now, is it? Are you going to now spectacularly achieve all those things that you'd promised in your lifetime? I mean, now you've conquered the grave. How about conquering the Romans? That'd be good, wouldn't it? You know how good it was with King David and then even better under King Solomon with that amazing huge temple and the wealth and the power and the wisdom. Jesus, you're better than Solomon when are you going to do the thing that makes you look just like Solomon? How's it going to happen and when's it going to be like? I can see why they would ask that question, sort of. But you see, Jesus had already told them, my kingdom is not of this earth. See, Jesus told them very clearly that his rule was spiritual. It's a spiritual rule. He's going to be a better king than David and a better king than Solomon. But it's going to look different. But whether it was spiritual or physical, the reality is that for God's people, life wasn't great. There had to be an expectation that in the future, something would happen. The full spiritual rule of Jesus must be experienced in some way at some time. So when? Well, Jesus answered this way, verse 7. He said, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. Oh, oh, sorry. Okay, right. Maybe I overstepped the mark. I mean, I'm excited, Jesus. Is that okay? Yeah, well, but it's, it's not our thing. 
they were not to know the timing of these things. Be nice to know when they would happen, but Jesus said, don't bother trying to work them out. Instead, look forward to a specific event in history that was going to see a massive outreach to the world. This was the big thing. And so in verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, when the time comes for the Holy Spirit to be upon them, then they'll have power. And what will the power do? The power will equip them to witness, to be witnesses, to, to be witnesses to Jesus. That is what he does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He leads people to talk about Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. A church that is filled with the Holy Spirit is a church that keeps talking about Jesus. That's how you can spot them. And what's more, a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit is a church that wants to keep talking to everyone about Jesus, not just the people within the church. You know, how will we know if our church here in Jamboree is filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we know if we are a Holy Spirit-filled church? It's because we keep talking about Jesus and his kingdom all the time. And we can't wait to tell more people about him. That's how you'll know that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus said would happen to the first disciples. And right here in this verse, we see just how it's going to happen. It's kind of like a contents page. It's a one verse summary to the whole of the book of Acts. He says basically that all of it is going to start in Jerusalem. That's why he said stay put in Jerusalem. And then from there... The good news of God would ripple out. It would ripple out. You know what it's like when you have a very still pond and someone goes and gets a rock and they throw it in the middle of the pond and you see a splash. And then after the splash, you see ripples going out and out and out and out and out. That is the way that the witnessing to the kingdom of God will happen. The big splash is going to happen in Jerusalem. And then it's going to go out to Judea. And then it's going to go out to Samaria. And then it's going to go out to the ends of the earth. And in the chapters that follow here, we'll see those four events happen. Four little Pentecosts, well, one really big Pentecost, and then three smaller ones will come to those in due course. And I've got to say, I'm so pleased that the message of Jesus went out to the ends of the earth. Because compared to Jerusalem, Jamboree really is at the ends of the earth. We are a long, long way from Jerusalem. And the ripples have come a long way to get to us over a long period of time. But praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit is here and that through him we are talking about Jesus and because of that we are knowing the Father. And just as they're trying to get their heads around all this, Jesus leaves them. Verse 9, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. A 
That's a pretty spectacular departure, wasn't it? It's like, whoa, wow. I kind of imagine it to be a little bit like a rocket launch, like the picture up on the screen. You know, you've seen those people as they sit around Cape Canaveral and the, the rocket launch takes off and there's the big noise and the big flash of light and they see the rocket take off, you know, the big Saturn V rocket take off or might be maybe the rocket that took Skylab into the sky or maybe the rocket that, that took, you know, maybe it was the, the big rockets that took the space shuttle or the, whatever it is and you stand there and it gets quieter and smaller and quieter and smaller and quieter and smaller and then eventually you can't see it. And you just, you can imagine everyone just eventually standing there and saying, it's gone. That's the kind of moment that God's people are at right there at that moment. They're looking up into space, looking up into seeing Jesus who's shot off like a rocket. And they're stunned. And verse 10 says that as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. I'm trying to imagine what this is like. Jesus shoots up. Whoa. Whoa, there's these angels there. Like, what on earth? You know, there's white people out of nowhere. You know, there's in robes glowing. It's like, this is a weird day. And right there, they have a word to the disciples. Verse 11. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. This is important, isn't it? Now, I don't think the angels were actually asking the disciples, explain why you're looking into the sky like your, your bird watchers. I think it's a little bit like when a toddler takes off their nappy that's full and starts playing with it, and the parent says, what are you doing with your nappy? The parent knows what they're doing with their nappy. They're not asking the kid to give them an explanation with what they're doing. It's like, why are you doing it? What on earth are you doing? The nappy's not supposed to do that. The angels ask this question almost as a bit of a rebuke. It's like, what are you looking up to space for? Stop staring and start witnessing. Stop staring into space. Jesus is gone. Start witnessing to who he is. Get on with it. And so they do. Verse 12 to 13a. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. And when they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. They go back to an upstairs room. It's, just, it, it's actually the upstairs room. It seems quite possible it was the same room that they had met in for the for the Last Supper, the night before Jesus died. We don't know for sure, but it seems quite possible. That was a pretty special moment back then before Jesus died. And now they've come together knowing that 40 days later, Jesus has now ascended into heaven. And they are there on their own, at least for a little bit longer. And they went there to wait and to wait and to wait. Uh, there's something that I wait around for. Uh, that is for my little RFS pager to go off. Um, I, I don't get a, a um, as a member of the RFS, I don't have like a schedule to say, you know, there's going to be a, a big bushfire tomorrow at a particular time. It's like suddenly it happens and the pager goes off. It's like, whoa, it's all happening. 
and uh, provided I'm willing and able and I'm available. Like, like my page has sometimes gone off and I've been leading a service at church and I think I probably better stay here as I do. Someone else goes off and does the thing. But there's an expectation, an uncertainty, and it's a call to action. I think in a much more significant way, that's what the disciples were doing. They're all together. They're, they're in this spot that meant so much to them and they're waiting. And suddenly they hear a, a noise. It's like, oh, was that it? Oh, no, 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 okay. There's, there's this expectation that in a few days that the Holy Spirit's going to come and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And what's more, they are waiting together. Together they're waiting. And we read who was with them. Verse 13b. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James... 11. And as the disciples of Jesus minus one met together, this is what they did. Verse 14 tells us that they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. Is that awesome? Constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. It wasn't just the disciples, it was his close family, his mum and his his brothers and other women as well. Those closest to Jesus gathered and they were constantly united in prayer. They didn't come together for a, a planning meeting. They didn't come together for a training meeting. They didn't come there to sort of work out their strategy to reach the ends of the earth. Now, all those things are good to do and we do them and that's a wise thing to do. But right here, they're there praying. They are praying as they wait for the Spirit. They prayed as they waited for the Spirit. Now, I was reflecting upon this during the week. I wonder if it might, be, might have been actually easier for them to pray at that point than, than I sometimes find praying. It's a, I think it must be a little bit like when a loved one passes away and those who have farewelled the loved one go to their grave and speak to them even though they're not present anymore. There's an ease with which they can speak and, and a comfort, like, like an honesty and an openness and an immediacy and an intimacy, all that sort of stuff. Jesus has just left these guys a few hours before and now they're talking to him again. And you can kind of imagine that they're imagining speaking to him right there. And I, I pray that my prayer times would feel just like that. But they don't need to because they're just as valuable. I'm still talking to the same person who shot off like a rocket into space and continues to be there listening to my prayers. They gathered together, persevering in prayer as one. It's a wonderful model, isn't it? Unity in prayer. I think when you've got a divided group of people, and sadly, Christians do tend to divide from time to time, when you come in the one room together and you pray with one voice to God, there is a deep unity that happens there. And that's what we have here amongst them. Not that they were disunified or any particular reason there, although there would have been some awkwardness as they recognised the aftermath of of. Peter's, betray uh, Peter's um, 
you know, the fact that he disowned Jesus and all that. There would have been maybe some weirdness in the room, but still, they came together as one. But there was a problem, and Peter brought it to their attention. Verse 15. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, so that's quite a bit more than just 11 or so, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted a long time ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Peter has now identified the so-called elephant in the room. Because now, the twelve had become eleven. And as they counted off, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, no twelve. Something was missing there. Now, it wasn't completely unexpected. I mean, the There were a few Bible verses that indicated it was going to happen. But even so, Peter told them what they knew. He said, he was one of us. And he shared in the ministry with us. And it would have been a moment where they got together and grieved not only what he did, but that he had died. One of their their team, one of the band of brothers, had betrayed their leader and had now died, committed suicide. The details are actually here. We read in verses 18 and 19, he bought a field with the money he'd received for his treachery, falling headfirst there. His body split open, spilling out all his intestines. The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name Akeldama, which means field of blood. It's tragic, isn't it? His only legacy now is a place in Jerusalem called Field of Blood. But there's another tragedy, and that is that the twelve have only become eleven. Verse 20, Peter continued, This was written in the book of Psalms where it says, Let his home become desolate with no one living in it. But it also says, Let someone else take his position. Peter realised at that point that because the twelve disciples were now the new formation of the 12 tribes of Israel, they needed to be complete. They couldn't have someone missing. It wouldn't work. Not for that next phase of the history of God's people. They were incomplete. And so they needed the full number to be restored. How are they going to choose that? We read verse 21. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were travelling with the Lord Jesus, from the time he was baptised by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. They needed a person to fill the gap, but more reason than any other is that they needed a full team of witnesses they needed a full 12 people 12 people all who had been with jesus the whole time and all who had seen him when he was alive after his resurrection they needed to do that 
so that they would testify to the miraculous resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They needed someone who'd been with them that whole time. And so verse 23, they nominated two men. Hang on a sec, we only need one. No, but they nominated two. They nominated Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. All right, well, that's pretty simple. We need one person, and so here are two. Two men qualified for the role. Who would they choose? Well, they decided that they weren't going to make the choice. I mean, Jesus chose the other 12. And so if they're going to be Jesus' apostles, Jesus has got to be the one who does the choosing. Now, why didn't they say to Jesus before he ascended into heaven, who would you like to have as the 12th man? And you can sort of imagine that Jesus is shot off into space and they're there together. It's like, hey, Peter, why didn't you sort that out before he went? Because now we've got this problem. We've got two candidates and we've got to work it out. And so they think, well, we can still talk to Jesus. And so they do. Verse 24, 5. Then they all prayed, O Lord Jesus, you know every heart. Show us which of these two men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Jesus in this ministry for he's deserted us and he's gone where he belongs. And so they cast lots and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. In some sort of divine form of scissors, paper, rock, we now find out who it is that Jesus has chosen. And that is that Jesus guided them to Matthias. He guided them to Matthias. Now, to be honest, this is not the way that I normally seek God's guidance. It's like, I've got two jobs on the table. Which one do I choose? Well, let's get out a coin. It's like, I wouldn't normally toss a coin to get divine guidance. I, I can see about how there might be a time when a person has prayed and prayed and prayed about a big decision and they just can't make the choice and so they do flip a coin. You may have done that. And you might think that it's a, just about chance. Well, it's not chance. The Lord would be sovereign in that, wouldn't he? He's in sovereign in control of everything. He would make that coin land heads or tails. It's not actually the way that I do trying to make discern God's choice, but you potentially could. But this situation they did. I think it was a special time, a specific moment in history where it made sense. And so they given Matthias. And so with 12, tri 12 disciples together representing the 12 tribes, God's people are ready for launch. They know that any day, at any time, God the Father will send the Holy Spirit of Jesus to be amongst them and to launch the church in an amazing, powerful way. And so for the disciples and those closest to Jesus, there was nothing more important for them to look forward to. You know, I'm sort of looking forward to running 42 kilometres next December but really, apart from the pain, uh, but really there's nothing compared to looking forward to the return of Jesus. See, that is our big moment where we come together like his disciples in the upper room waiting for the return of, of, the, of the, the sending of the, of the Spirit of God. See, for us, having had the Spirit come, our greatest future event is Jesus' return. That is what we must await. And what we must also unite in prayer about. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha was a phrase that the early Christians would once say. 
and that we too can say, Come, Lord Jesus. And in these days before Jesus returns, it is our mission to do what the Spirit has filled us to do. And that is to witness to Jesus Christ in our village, in our valley, and to all the ends of the earth. Excuse me. Let's pray. <clears throat> our loving Father, we thank you so much that you sent your Spirit. And we look forward to reading more about that next week in chapter 2. But we thank you, Jesus, that you were working in the lives of those disciples, preparing them for that moment. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that as your Spirit has filled us, that we too would be witnessing to Christ as a church and as individuals. And we thank you, Father, so much for the joy we have in the hope of Jesus. Jesus who rose from the dead. Jesus who ascended to heaven. And Jesus who is coming back again. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you've got any questions about any of that, you rip off the response slip like this. Fill it in and return it in the bags that will be passed around a little bit later on in our service. Next week, we are looking at the topic, Launching the Church, Part 2, which is Launch Day. And it's all about Pentecost. Can't wait to share that with you. Can't wait for you to uh, hear that and the remarkable event in the life of the church.